against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven. What did you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? Is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. But they'll vote with Potter otherwise. You can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. You realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. I'm worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them? I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been born. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. George Bailey sure did have a wonderful life, didn't he? I mean, it may have taken a miracle for him to see it, but that wonderful life was always there. Uh, I'm very glad to see that so many of you survived this snowpocalypse uh, that, that has happened over the last few days. Uh, you know, again, coming from Florida, we have winds. Our winds just normally don't have little pieces of ice mixed in with it. Um, we did have one casualty at the Swigard home uh, Friday. Um, we commented, we were standing by our front window looking at our front yard, and Linda said to me, she said, you know, should we take some of the Christmas decor down out front? Do you think it's going to blow away? I said, no, I anchored that stuff down so well, there's no way a little snowstorm is going to blow it away. And I would say within like two minutes of me saying that and looking out the window, unfortunately, the Virgin Mary in our nativity scene was anchored down so well that the wind just snapped her in half. And on its way out, she took the manger and Joseph and baby Jesus with her as well. So now if you drive by the front of my house, there's just one little sad donkey still sitting in the snow. A real quick review, and I promise it will be quick, but since we have some new faces with us here today, what we've been doing this month here as a congregation is we've been looking at some of the classic Christmas movies that we all know and that we all love. And what we've been looking for in these movies is trying to see the, the footprints of Jesus all throughout them, or, or look and be able to see God's word in these movies. Even when the movie itself has no religious undertone, right? When the creators of the movie, they had no intention that their work could ever be used to, to draw someone to Jesus. The theory that we've worked with is that if we watch these movies, and really if we watch anything that happens in our life, through Jesus-tinted glasses, we won't be able to help but to see the Bible all around us. We started and we looked at the movie A Christmas Carol, and we saw how it reminded us of Zacchaeus, that wee little man, right? That wee little man that would climb a tree so Jesus could see him. And in an instant, his life could be changed. His heart could be thawed. We, of course, looked at Home Alone, everyone's favorite Christmas classic. And, and through some weird twists and turns, we, we actually saw within that movie a call to discipleship for all of us. 
Last week was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And we saw this direct correlation to the story of John the Baptist. Right? John being this one that would come and would blaze a path in the storm, who would lead the way through the darkness for something greater that was coming behind him. And today, obviously, by what you just saw, we're going to be looking at It's a Wonderful Life. Now, It's a Wonderful Life is, is pretty easy to do this with. I hope if you've seen this film before, you haven't had to squint too hard to see the real meaning of Christmas all throughout this film. It's actually interesting, when I went back and watched it again a couple weeks ago as I prepared for this, you know, we consider this to be one of the greatest Christmas movies ever, but Christmas really doesn't have much to do with the story of this movie. I mean, you're almost two-thirds of the way through the film before Christmas is even mentioned, before we get to Christmas Eve. The movie, it opens in a very curious way, too. We're, we're, we're kind of flying through this little picturesque town, uh, Beaver Falls, New York. And as we zoom by each window and we zoom by each building, we hear voices. We hear young voices and old voices, male voices and female voices. But all of the voices are united in one thing. All of them are in prayer for this man, George Bailey. Every voice is pleading to God for the welfare and safety of this one man. And then we see, of course, that the prayers, they make their way to heaven. And in the film, we see that the angels, they, they hear these prayers, and an angel is dispatched to see if George Bailey can be saved from himself. We learn right off the bat that George Bailey is contemplating suicide. But before Clarence departs for Earth, before he's going to see if he can earn his wings finally, uh, we get this very convenient, nice flashback of George's life. We get to see what led George to this point, that he would actually be prepared to end his own life. And what we learn along with Clarence is that this George Bailey, he's actually a really, really good guy. We see these highlights of his life, and it starts with, with him pulling his brother out of a frozen pond. His younger brother Harry falls through the ice, and he doesn't hesitate. He jumps right in, he pulls Harry out. The thanks he gets for saving his brother, though, is he loses his hearing in his one ear. We see how compassionate George is as a young man. He's working at a pharmacy. Maybe he's 12, 13 years old. His employer, whose son recently died, is, is, is just drunk at work. He shouldn't be there. He accidentally mixes the wrong pills, putting poisons in a capsule that are meant for another boy in the town. George catches the mistake. He refuses to deliver the poison pills. When his employer finds out what he did, what George gets for doing the right thing is he gets a beating. And even after he gets the beating, though, he shows mercy to the man. Right? He doesn't turn him in. He doesn't even go back and tell his parents. He knows that this man is broken and hurting, and he's just glad that he was there to help to save the day. And that's a recurring theme, is George always puts everyone else before himself. When it's time to head off to college and have a chance to travel the world, he doesn't go. He, he stays home. He helps the family business. He stays home and he helps his mother after his father passes away. This dream of going to college when it finally passes him by, the money that George put aside to, to fund his education, he gives it to his little brother, Harry, so that Harry can go off. And Harry has the chance to have this wonderful life. George stays time after time to keep Bailey, Lone, and Trust in float so that the people of uh, Beaver Falls can have a, a dream of actually being able to own their own home. So this evil tyrant, Mr. Potter, can't overrun things with his corruption. 
And things eventually they do start to look up for George. Right? If you've seen the movie, you know that he ends up marrying his dream girl. And they're in the back of a car. They're on their way to go on their dream honeymoon. They have an envelope of cash in their hand. And what happens? But again, lightning strikes. News of a run on the banks come. And all of a sudden, the money that George and his bride, they had for this trip where George was finally going to travel the world like he's always wanted to, that money ends up getting distributed to the town folk to hold them over until they're able to access their savings account. It all goes to keep others afloat. But George Bailey perseveres. You know, unbeknownst to him, George is the only thing that's standing in between Mr. Potter and overrunning this town. Again, George's chance to, to, to travel the world, it never came. His chance to go to college, it never came. He has a beautiful wife. He has his kids. He stays behind during World War II because of his bad ear. He does not go off to war, but, but he keeps the town folk together during that time. He leads them through that struggle. And finally, it's Christmas Eve. All is well this Christmas Eve. The stockings are hung by the chimney with care. The tree is decorated. Christmas joy and hope abound. And again, George is feeling like everything is finally coming together for him. His little brother, who he sent off to college to, to live a better life than he had, went into the military, was a war hero. He, he's being awarded a medal by the president. Again, he has four kids. They are happy. They are healthy. They are growing. This business that he has sacrificed everything for to keep it afloat, primarily for other people, not to enrich himself, but to better the town, the business is, is finally doing okay. But then a bank auditor shows up on Christmas Eve. You say the word auditor and you just want to say bah humbug, don't you? Hopefully there's no auditors here in the audience today, but I just can't help but think, what was so important with that audit it couldn't wait till December the 26th? What kind of auditor shows up on Christmas Eve? But coincidentally, it's the same day that, that George's absent-minded uncle, Billy, loses an $8,000 bank deposit. George has kept Billy employed all of these years, again, doing the right thing and taking care of his family despite Billy's quirks. But with $8,000 now missing on Christmas Eve, the auditor was going to find that Bailey Trust and Loan was insolvent. He would shut them down. You know what was even worse than that is, is he would assume that George was incompetent. Maybe even worse than, than the auditor assuming that George was incompetent, he would assume that George was crooked. Maybe he gambled away the townsfolk's money. It's implied that, that maybe someone's going to think he has a girlfriend on the side that he's trying to support. And here George is, after sacrificing his entire life, and on Christmas Eve, he's faced with shame and bankruptcy and the real threat of going to prison. After everything that he did, after everything that he gave and sacrificed, a man who gave and sacrificed to the point that it hurt, to the point that it was now literally going to break him, the one who, who looked out for everyone else, he was now going to pay a price for someone else's incompetence. And he was going to pay with everything that he valued, everything that he held dear. He knew exactly what was coming. And he thought of all the times that he could have taken the easy way out. He could have just left and went to college and traveled the world. He could have let the loan company go under. He could have let Mr. Potter foreclose on his friends and his neighbors, but he didn't. He stayed. He, he did all the right things. He made all the right choices. And now he was going to be the one that paid the price. 
In George's mind at this moment, it wasn't a wonderful life, it was a wasted life. George climbs up on a bridge after drinking a little too much at the bar, and he's ready to jump. And it's in that moment that Clarence appears. And Clarence gives George what he calls a great gift, a chance to see what the world would be like without him. George is able to see everything. His friend Martini never is able to purchase his own home, never is able to open his own restaurant to support his family. Old Mr. Gower, the pharmacist, there was no one there to stop him from poisoning that little boy. A young boy died. Mr. Gower spent two decades in prison because of it. His good friend Ernie, the cab driver, well, Ernie's wife and, and their kids, they left because George wasn't there to give sound advice. The, the family home that he and his wife built and had memories in, it was a broken down mess. There were no memories there for George anymore. He, he ran frank, frantically to go find his mother to make sure she was okay. And what he found is his mother had been reduced to having to run a boarding home out of her house just to get by. Her husband had died years ago. Her only son, Harry, drowned, fell through the ice, and there was no one there to save him. Uncle Billy's quirks, well, they landed him in the insane asylum. Potter took over the quaint little town. He turns it into this mini Las Vegas. There's neon signs everywhere. There's bars and nightclubs on a main street that was once dotted by cute little, cute little store uh, fronts. And George is now broken. George has seen enough. He runs back to the bridge. He's unable to stand the thought of how this world would be without his sacrifices. And in, in, in desperation, he, he prays. He yells out to God. He says, please, God, let me live again. And that's where I just can't help myself. Right? That's where I can't help but to look through those Jesus-tinted glasses and see the Christmas story and see the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in this movie. This one is so easy, it's served right up on a silver platter for us. It's all clean and nice and tidy. It's so easy for us to take this and go out and share this with anyone in our life if we so choose. I want to invite you to open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 2. Because it wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't read from Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 2. And of course, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you're more than welcome to look it up on your phone. Or you could also just look over my shoulders behind me at the lovely green present tag. Starting in verse 1, it says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them at the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, it's right here in this manger where our hope, where our possibility for a truly wonderful life actually begins. It's not where it ends, but every epic story has to be a beginning, and this is ours. Right here is where my hope for a wonderful life, a wonderful life that is filled with joy, this is where it starts. Because it's right here where Jesus Christ would enter the world as a baby, laying in a manger. It's in this moment where God would become man, the promised Messiah that the people had waited for. He was now here. And as we've mentioned, he did not come with fanfare. He did not come to great honor. He came subtly and quietly on what was an otherwise silent night. Jesus would grow and he would become a man. Right? Jesus would grow and he would grow in wisdom and he would grow in strength. As he would grow, he would make right decision after right decision. As he would grow, he would honor God. He would respect his parents. He would always keep the law. He would serve others. As he grew, he lived a life without sin of any kind. But again, living this wonderful life, it did not get Jesus what we would expect it to, did it? And this is where I hope that this Christmas message is different than ones you've heard in years past. Right? I know most of the Christmas messages we would hear, we would read something like Luke 2, and then we would dissect one specific detail of the Christmas story together. Right? Maybe we would do a, a deep dive into the ethnicity of the wise men or the real timing of their travels. Per perhaps we would talk about the perfect timing of, of Caesar's decree to call Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem and, and how that fulfilled prophecy that was given hundreds of years before. We could do that, and maybe it would help us have a greater trust in God's timing and in our own lives. Or we could go and we could follow the lineage all the way back to David, and because of that we would see God's faithfulness. I know that everyone in this room has heard sermons about the angelic visits, about the bravery of Mary, about the faithfulness of Joseph. And there's nothing wrong with any of these. These, these are all great things that you should know. But it's not the whole story. You see, if someone came to church today for the very first time this morning, and, and all they left with was just a neat, fun fact about the Christmas story, that's just not good enough for us. Right? That's not why we are here. We didn't get up and, and drag ourselves away from the Christmas tree and the presents, and, and we didn't maybe skip over that big old uh, uh, Christmas breakfast to just come here and share a fun fact with you. And if you are visiting with us today, if you're tuning in online today and you don't normally do so, if you're doing that specifically because someone invited you to be here today, I just want you to understand that there is a reason that they invited you. I don't think it's because they wanted you to see our, our pretty stage design. I really don't think it's because they just wanted to sing a Christmas carol while you stood next to them. If someone invited you to be here or to be watching this today, it's because they want you to also be able to have a wonderful life that is filled with joy. They want you to know that when Clarence the angel said that one man's life can truly touch so many other lives, 
Right? They want you to know that just like George Bailey, you can be the richest man in town. But it all starts because of a baby lying in a manger. You see, we don't worship Jesus because of his miraculous birth. We don't worship Jesus because of his miraculous conception. Right? We cherish all of these things, just like his mother did. We appreciate this part of the story because obviously it points us to, to Christ's divinity. But it's not really Jesus' birth. That's not what really brings me joy. What brings me joy is Jesus' invitation. It's the invitation that his life leaves for all of us that would come after him. It's that prayer that George Bailey cried out in desperation, God, just let me live again. You see, our, our joy comes from the fact that one man made a way to touch every single life that would come after his, every single person who would call on his name and put faith in him. Everyone who's willing to cry out, Abba, Father, I want to live again, will be heard. That can be the reality for each and every one of us. You know, it's not just the reality for those that are completely unselfish and live a wonderful life like George Bailey. It's the reality for those of us who have been quite selfish. It's a reality for those of us who have fallen short of the expectations that maybe others have for our lives. It's the reality for those of us who have been addicted. It's the reality for those of us who have fallen prey to lust. It's the reality for those of us who have made every single wrong turn imaginable to get to this point. For all of us, a baby was born in a manger to make sure that when we do cry out, please God, I want to live again, that his answer every single time to every single one of us, no matter where you came from, no matter what you've done or when you've done it, the answer that you will hear is, come to me, my child. He does not invite us to come share in his, in his inheritance because we have lived a wonderful life. He invites us because of the wonderful life that Jesus Christ lived. The wonderful life that Jesus Christ sacrificed. You know, when that baby who was born in a manger, when he would grow to be a man, he would say this in John chapter 15. This is verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You've heard it a million times before, but I don't care. You hear it again this morning from me. Jesus Christ, one-third of the Trinity, became man, and he dwelled on this earth among us. He, he grew. He lived a life just like ours, but he did so without sin. He felt the same things that we feel. He was tempted in the same ways that we are tempted. Right? But he succeeded in all the areas where we have fallen short. He kept himself clean. He kept himself pure. And at the proper time, he revealed himself to a world that reviled him. His power and his authority, it made it clear to all who desired to see, all could see the truth. Right? Through his teachings, through the miracles that he would perform, those who actually sought God came to see that the Messiah was in their presence. But, but those who would value tradition over grace, those who would value what man had made over what God had ordained, they feared him, and they plotted to kill him. And they succeeded. 
They hung him on a cross. They hung him on a cross right in front of his mother. They broke his body. They spilled his blood. They placed that body in a tomb that was guarded by Roman soldiers. Right? But the story can't end there because if the story ends there, it's really not a wonderful life. What makes it a wonderful life is that three days later, Jesus Christ resurrected. He defeated death. He declared this in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see, it's this offer to believe and to be baptized, that is the true culmination of the Christmas story. One life that came long ago and had an impact on everyone that would come after him for the rest of eternity. One life that was lived so well and and laid down for a great multitude of friends has touched countless lives. This one life has brought me real joy, and it's brought real joy to so many others as well. It's brought a joy that is completely unbreakable by this world. This one life lived, it offers you an opportunity today to share in hope and to share in joy. If we go back to the movie for a minute, does anybody remember um, after George cries out to God, he says, God, I just want to live again. He runs home as fast as he can. And when he opens the, the door to his house, does anybody remember who he finds there waiting for him? The cops. He finds the bank auditor. He finds the police waiting for him. And the first thing that he says, he hugs his family, and he says, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. It it took an angelic visit by a wingless angel. It took him seeing that everything and everyone that he loved and everything and everyone that he treasured would be destroyed just for George to get to the place that he could have joy in the midst of anything and everything. George was able to find joy in the face of his enemies, even when they were about to send him to jail. See, George's life had changed in that moment. From this moment on, George would never ride the roller coaster. He, He would never ride this ride swinging between peace and anxiety, or swinging between joy and depression. See, George had learned the secret that now he he could be grateful even in the face of of imprisonment. And that's what I see in the nativity scene. Or if my nativity scene was still there at home, that's what I would see in it when I got home today. When I see that little baby wrapped in a manger, what I see is joy. Not happiness, but joy. Right? I've said this plenty of times. Happiness stems from what is happening around me. Happiness is fragile. Right? Happiness can be thrown off by bad weather. How many people's happiness got affected the last couple days because of, of what was happening outside? Happiness can be derailed by a cranky child. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Happiness can be lost because of illness. Happiness can be stolen because of our circumstance, but my joy can't. Happiness comes from what is happening. Joy comes from Jesus. Joy begins in the manger. Joy is cemented in our lives in the empty tomb. So in the face of whatever the world decides it will, will, will hurl at me, I choose to have joy. Right? Because God promised me a wonderful, eternal life because of the sacrifice of Jesus. 
the only man whose life truly touched every man, woman, and child who would just be brave enough to call on his name. And that's our invitation today, is to share in the real joy of Christmas. If you have not made the decision to call Jesus your Lord, Christmas Day can indeed be the day that you are reborn a new creation. Merry Christmas. Pray with me.